Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we welcome Andy Huey, who is running for Senate District 29, same as Todd Nash, who we interviewed a couple episodes ago. Uh, before we get into it, though, uh, Alex McAdded, a friend of the podcast, had a little thing he wanted us to pitch to you guys. A group of young conservatives is launching a new media initiative for the Beaver State this week, rightnoworegon.com. Featuring news and shows, including The Rational Republican, Northwest Observer, Mark Thielman's The Good Fight, Slavic Vote Live, Young Republicans of Oregon, other creators, conservatives now have a one-stop shop for Oregon news and information straight from the source without bias we have, without the bias we have come to expect from the media. I would expect there's a right-wing bias. It does. (laughs) We're going to be pretty biased. Sorry. I didn't, didn't, uh. Uh, he wrote this. <laughs> With daily news releases straight from the source and great guest content, you can stay ahead of the news by visiting rightnoworegon.com or following them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Stay tuned for updates about a Right Now Oregon phone app later this year and a TV station next summer. So, there you go. Dang. And, oh, uh, good stuff. Andy, I think you're involved with that. Yes, I am. All right. Well, first of all, why don't we why don't we tell us uh, who you are, what you're running for, why you're running, and then uh, we can talk a little bit about right nor right now, Oregon, not right nor. <laughs> <laughs> we should note we're recording us at eight sixty in the morning, eight, eight, eight o'clock in the morning Sunday. on a Sunday. This yeah. Is a, so uh, normally we have a little like you know we had a beer or a glass of wine or something like that. Now we're just drinking our coffee, trying coffee to wake and, up. Coffee and donuts. <laughs> well, yeah. we can blame last night's festivities on that. That's true. Well, one <laughs> of the reasons know. we're doing this first thing on a Sunday morning is that last night we had the Reagan dinner here in Washington County and it was a all good time. We all three were out there. So anyway, all right, back to the topic at hand. Andy. So I'm a seventh generation Oregonian that's been raised in Eastern Oregon for the majority of my life. Uh, this is counting Eastern Oregon as Hood River East, which hmm. Hood River is not classified as Eastern Oregon normally. Um, I grew up in Hood River, and then I moved further east into true Eastern Oregon. My family has been involved in Oregon since its founding. We came back on the Oregon Trail, founded most of the Mid-Columbia Gorge, including in the Wasco County area and even in Umatilla, Union, in Gillum County area, and I currently have family that resides across the entire district. Um, for some people who are wondering who some of those are, if you guys know who the Snipes family is, that includes Ben Snipes, who's the Northwest Cattle King that ran cattle all the way from Lake Chelan all the way across through Montana, and we are directly related through his brother, George, who was a major player in Chenoweth and the Fort Dalles area. For a little bit more of my political background, I got involved in politics back in 2018 
with then-Representative Drazen's HB 2444 bill, which was in regards to Ag Teacher Overtime with FFA, as that is identified as an intracurricular activity rather than an extracurricular activity. So, then, oh, all right, sorry, I'm just curious. So FFA was not getting... So typically, if you are a football coach or something, mm-hmm. you get overtime for coaching duties. And FFA was not getting that? Is that what... So what it covers is FFA's year-round compared to being seasonal. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of ag teachers, they're going out and visiting SAE projects during the summer when normal teachers are not paid. And so it was classified as ag teacher overtime, but it was expanding the funding for those teachers to be able to get paid during the summer for actual work that they're doing, going out visiting farms, going and helping with projects branding animals, whatever was needed for that specific project. Got it. Got it. Who says the GOP is anti-education? You know? know, That's a great bill to be working on. (laughs) Good job, Christine. We didn't ask her about that when we talked to her. No. Get her back on the I imagine she's got several bills that she she (laughs) sponsored while she could have talked about any number of them. (laughs) But um, yeah, so you're running for Senate District 29, uh, which is the 11 counties in Northwest Oregon. Northeast. Northeast. Yes, correct. (laughs) Not Northwest. We are Northwest. Um, and uh, kind of a it's, so it's a heavily conservative district. Uh, whoever wins the Republican primary is very likely to go on to win the general. Uh, you got a couple of competitors. What made you decide to throw your hat in the ring and start running for a Senate seat? So my hat got thrown in as the first hat a fish, not publicly announced, but my pack was filed back on February 2nd. So that was a month and a half before the next person, Todd Nash, filed. Uh, I originally started looking back and started looking at the process back in November. Uh, we, I was at the Drazen event, election night party. Mm-hmm. Sad to see her not win. But. Election night moratorium. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was it was closer than, you know, I, I, I was also at that party. Mm-hmm. And remember someone saying like, hey, this is the first election party where there was actually like some some talk about you know well, what's going to happen it was, it, when, when bueller oh, yeah. lost it was like it was polls, polls, <laughs> polls are closed okay we're done yep. <laughs> all right he lost let's get out of here well, this, at least what lasted until the next day i think oh yeah and i remember us being at the party and when we had a talk at er, when we talked at the party it was That's everybody right. had an uplift feeling and we were really excited till it started going the bad way and then everybody was hoping well some of there were some problems in eastern oregon especially in one of my di- one of the counties in the district i'm running for union county there they were required to get a uh, a ballot counter an electronic one and the machine went down election night and that is where the problems were so you had some of these conservative counties that were forced to get these election machines that just weren't working properly and it was their first time using them because shamia fagan said you have to have them and you have to use them this election Hmm. so that that was a whole nother nightmare on top of everything else yeah well the ballots got counted it it was so frustrating because she was neck and neck like the polling was (laughs) 50 50 Uh for a lot of the of the time and um I, I think it was I think if Betsy had continued her media push until election day, I think it would have been a lot closer. But she basically just gave up, stopped running ads the last couple of weeks, and that was it. Now we have uh Governor Kotek. 
Thanks, Shamia. We've expressed op- <laughs> we've expressed opinions on her on this podcast before. I don't know what's happened with her career lately. We'll have to get into that at some point. But. Mm. <laughs> See if was it's that, anything good. Was that a joke? <laughs> that, that was yeah. That was tough to, again. Eight o'clock in the morning. Tough to tell. Okay. That was being facetious. Um, Bill Hansel is currently the state senator. Uh, I know that obviously he's retiring for for Senate District Twenty Nine, the the, the the district that you're hoping to represent. Um, do you, if you've got any thoughts on him, has he has he done a great job, and you're looking to him as somebody to emulate? Has he done a lousy job, and you're looking to him as somebody who's like, all right, look, here's the floor. We can we got to be able to do better than this. What are you? Know, who do you consider role models for Senate District District Twenty Nine, or what type of work are you hoping to do once you get elected? Well, I think there we need to have a different look upon it. Senator Hansel has been in politics for 40 plus years. And he, if you ask anybody in the district, they have very mixed views, but they have that very much on all of our candidates that are out there. You can ask one that it can be different per person. Overall, people did like Senator Hansel. I worked with him when I worked for Representative Levy. And he sponsored my bills. So I have very fond feelings toward him because he helped try to pass some important legislation that I believe was going to help our rural areas and help our state. Um, Senator Hansel is someone to look to because he is a statesman. I've had a lot of people ask me to emulate him when I'm there that I already have some of the natural emulation of him of I'm willing to listen to anybody. And sit down and not just outright say i'm not going to listen to you mm-hmm. you're you're my constituent so i'm it's not that i'm an obligated to listen to you but i want to listen to you and hear your opinion and whether i agree or disagree and that's one thing that i've heard from both sides of the aisle that senator hansel did very well and that they were very appreciative of that because if you talk in eastern oregon we're very unrepresentative we are underrepresented in Salem, Mm -hmm. and you have a lot of disenfranchisement. And even if you sub-focus on the Democrat Party in Eastern Oregon, they're the least represented in the state. And they're they're constantly ignored, and a lot of them had high praises of that Senator Hansel was at least willing to listen to them and try to work on Hmm. common sense policy, even if he did not agree with them. I would say Republicans in the metro area are pretty underrepresented as well. (laughs) <laughs> that just, that's true uh, too <laughs> just just uh throwing that out that's there. A, that's a good we should get like the malier county democratic party chair to come that out would here actually just be, have a little that would be interesting fest. do they even have an organized party y'all here does just be one guy here does yeah. yes they're actually one of the few in eastern oregon that does have a organized party i know that even some of the smaller counties don't even have a republican party an organized republican so party. one one of the counties in my district is wheeler county yeah they do not have an organized republican Party at all, yeah. We just have an organized Republican Party in Multnomah County. It's pretty disorganized. It's well, there, but it's, it's, it's organized in the technical sense. But yeah. oh uh, yeah, Wheeler County is not in the technical sense. It right. is nothing. Right. Well, so switching gears a little bit, uh, we talked about this a little bit before the podcast while we we're waiting for for Nick to show up. But you're you're a younger guy involved in the Young Republicans. Um, what do we do to get more young people involved in politics and specifically young Republicans or young conservatives to start voting? A lot of it is specifically targeting them Mm. because unfortunately too much of the messaging is for the older folks and you're looking at us and you're not talking about anything that interests us 
or you're not even catering any message to us to try to help come out and vote for you. Can you give an example of like what would be a, a, a message that is designed or like aimed at older folks versus one that was aimed at younger people? So you can look at some of the general conservative standpoints that when you talk about tax reform, that does turn off a lot of super young voters that don't understand really what's going on with all the tax policy in the state. Even some of the older folks don't even know what's going on there. But that that's classified mentally as something for older folks to look at. And then you're looking at something that would work for younger voters is maybe sub-focusing on a technology, which that's those are very stereotypical. But okay. it, it's one of the things that we're more involved in, and it's constantly changing. Mm-hmm. But you can even focus on, I mean, th- this one is a broad appeal for both, but education, having education focused on post-secondary for kids my age, because a lot of them are going to college, mm-hmm. but also having a sub-focus on um, pre-secondary, so elementary and secondary school for for those who are in the older crowd that have kids that are going to that and wanting to be in their community. Hmm. Interesting. Well, yeah. As a guy with a nine month old, it's definitely, it's like, all right, Kyle, you gotta, we're gonna have to start figuring <laughs> some stuff out. If you go to school in, in Portland, it's not going to end up being super great here for well, you. That's, that's what we're looking at too. I mean, we're in the next couple of years, probably going to buy a house and we're looking at school districts and it's like, where do you go that, well, not, not PPS, you know, mm-hmm. we're not, not trying to, send them to Portland public. So it's like Lake Oswego or West Lynn or, you know, that's, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. Well, that, that, that's suddenly a, suddenly on my radar of where, where to send kids. Also, my wife is a teacher for PBS. If she listens to this, she's going to murder sorry, us. Madeline. Well, it, it's, it's not even much better in Eastern Oregon either with us looking at schools. Thankfully, a lot of our schools are active in the inter-district transfer policy, mm-hmm. especially in Wallowa and Union County that is used quite frequently. But you're, 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 you're looking at schools and trying to make sure you're finding the best school for your students. And some of them are just becoming worse as you look at them. Well, I, I honestly, I feel like that's the thing is like I not to take pot shots at PPS, which, again, I feel like we have done a fair amount on this podcast. Uh, the, the district, not the teachers, not my wife. Right. Madeline, Correct. We love you. Um, but it, it really is throughout the entire state. The, the, the caliber of education is, it, it is subpar. And I think that is something that is of concern for individuals who are our, I don't, I'm 35. James is 37, eight, eight. 38. Yeah. Yeah. Out of late twenties, early thirties. I don't know. I, I'm not trying to get, not trying to ask personal questions here on the podcast, <laughs> but for people our age who have, we're starting to have young children or starting to have, okay, you know, f- figure out what's going on. But I think also for any budding small business owners in the state or people who are trying to grow and expand or IPO or anything like that, if you don't have a workforce who can, provide a supply of people who are able to do the jobs that you're trying to get them to do. If we don't have an educated, you know, technically literate workforce here in Oregon, I have to start bringing people from other states and you have to start, you know, hoping that somebody else's education system is better. And then it's just like, you know, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Well, and even as a larger conversation with that, I'll first answer. I'm 20. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Okay. I don't have a problem answering that question. (laughs) Good Um, on you. That's okay. We... As of today, I'm 20. 
yesterday when you met me. I was 19. Oh, happy oh, birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, you're spending your 8 a.m. on your birthday and drinking coffee and doing a podcast. Good for you. That's a, I, I, I hope that your birthday only gets better from here. <laughs> um, I, as had mentioned, I, I had 13 bills last session. I had 14 actually. 13 of them were all focused on education though. Hmm. I got burned at my own school district and found out a lot of other people were burned very badly. And this is at a conservative school district. And I ended up having to go get my GED. And mm. that was a nightmare on top of it. Mm. And I, I'll say it's not because I was a bad student. Right. <laughs> it was school district doing illegal stuff and they're still being investigated for it. Oh, yes. yikes. Oh, yeah. It, it, that's been a fun thing to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, Torch the place as I'm leaving it. <laughs> <laughs> Another topic for a plot. figuratively. Well, <laughs> so I think <laughs> good catch. <laughs> I think to Andy's point, like you and I, Nick, are at the age where t- people typically start becoming more conservative. Um, it's kind of a well-known demographic that you, that younger people are more liberal, and then you start to get more conservative as you get older. And I think it's because when you hit your, you know, 30s. It's when you start paying more taxes. It's when you start having kids. It's when you start caring about those things that, uh, to Andy's point, are Republican hit with the Republican messaging, which is the tax reform, the government intrusion in your lives, the the good schools, and not putting crazy stuff into the into the um, the curriculum. We're we're the target demographic, and we're like our our age group is resonating with the Republican Party with the Republican. Um, maybe not the platform. That's that's its own issue. But, I don't think anybody resonates with, with the platform. Republican <laughs> messaging. Um, it's the it's the younger folks, and I think that that's actually interesting, Andy, because you know education and spending more money on things is more of a democratic mm-hmm. platform, tem- democratic messaging. So it's tough. That's just interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that because you know typically we're just like spend less and. The things that younger people need is more, more, more spending on, on certain things, not just well, in general, but. And even as a larger conversation with that, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about one of the ideas in my bill that one of the bills um, was in regard to making tax credits for businesses to invest into their local school districts. Hmm. It was, it was broken apart on uh, different, different levels per let's say further away you get away from the community. So if you're a local business founded in the community, you you are able to get the larger tax break from that. And as you move up going to statewide or even multinational, you get a smaller piece of benefit for doing it, Hmm. even though they can provide more money. And that those are some things you're going to look at trying to find different funding structures Mm -hmm. to on top of it. But you you aren't even needing to talk to my generation like, hey, we're going to give you more money to go to college. Mm-hmm. That That's not necessarily a wise thing on a conservative side. But just being able to talk about having the actual conversation about the affordability of college now and that you can't even fund it right. <laughs> as a student cash flow anymore is quite hard. Now, I will say I am lucky. I've gotten state grants and I've gotten scholarships that I'm able to basically fund out of pocket. Mm-hmm. I did my first two years at Blue Mountain Community College as an alumni. Now that I'm an alumni there, I paid $200 out of pocket. Mm-hmm. And I did it on online school. At Eastern Oregon, for this upcoming term, I'm paying $600 out of pocket. Mm. 
Nice. And my tuition's over five thousand. <laughs> yeah. Just my tuition. And even that's low compared to a lot of compared to a lot of yeah. them. And that that's what Eastern Oregon's known for is being the low tuition. But you're looking at this wide and you're having different groups like Oregon Students Association coming out and trying to talk about these, but they're still sub focusing on Lane Community College and U of O and OSU and even PSU because they're the big ones who bring in the lobbying money for them. And uh, I'm the director of political affairs for Eastern Oregon University's student hmm. government as well. And we had a conversation with OSA and they're working on restructuring to try to make sure for the trues that they actually have representation in there and having a larger conversation with us because we're the ones that are suffering. Mm-hmm. I can't see in the next decade, unless something changes, I can see Eastern Oregon University dying. I can see Blue Mountain Community College dying, and I can see Treasure Valley starting to fail. Hmm. And those are some of the larger schools just within Eastern Oregon. Yeah. I mean, Eastern Oregon University, our projections are a 1,000 students. Hmm. When I was at um, University of Oregon for my for grad school for uh, in business, one of the things that they were doing was – so. University of Oregon Business School was winning awards for being the most affordable, best, best affordable uh, MBA program. And one of the things that they were doing while I was there is significantly raising their tuition. And being as that it's a small program, you know, we had pretty, pretty good access to the leadership within the program and asked the question, like, a lot of us chose to come here because it's affordable. Um, I mean, I chose to come there because it was in Oregon and that's my home, but mm-hmm. a lot of people came because it's affordable. And they're like, well, there's this perception that we're not as good because we don't have, because we're a third the price of some of these other MBA programs. And so raising tuition was, was a, an idea to raise their standing and raise their, the perception of the program. And I was like, this Love is, take. yeah, well, it's, I think the idea was that they would then offer more scholarships, and so the amount the money that the school took in was going to be was going to be roughly the same. But you you charge more and then give more away, and then you have this perception of of a premium product. Um, and I don't disagree with their logic, but it sucks when every school is doing that. <laughs> well, and and the ones that don't are losing students. Well. I, I will say this a little bit about Eastern. Um, it's Our problem is not that we're not raising tuition and that's driving students away. Um, it, it's a couple mixture of demographics. We do have a high quantity of students that are, um, they come from a feeder college. So Blue Mountain's a feeder college for mm-hmm. us as well as TVCC. They come here for a term and then because their main goal is to transfer out to OSU or U of O. Mm. So that that is part of that demographic too, or even WSU and U of I. We also we do have a large population of um, foreign students that are at our university, especially from the micronations and the Pacific mm-hmm. Islands. And even on top of that, we have some of the toughest programs in the state. <laughs> that is one thing that has not been recognized super often, but Eastern Oregon University has the best early childhood education program in the state of Oregon. My mom is a teacher. She went through that. And when she did it back in the set in the eighties, she became nationally sought 
for that. And when she went to Illinois, she got a job because she had an Oregon teaching degree and did not have to fight much harder. Hmm. Now that degree is worthless. Okay. Even though Eastern Oregon's is still on the highest standing, it is quite hard and it does actually drive, I'll say it does drive students out. I have had conversations where they, where they start at here, they learn quite a bit and then they transfer to OSU or U of O because it's, it's an easier program to finish there than to finish here. Interesting. And I mean, you know, go beeps. I'll say that all day. Even though we did just lose to Washington <laughs> State, it's very, it's a very dark day for, dark day for Beaver fans here on a Sunday morning. Um, but that's the, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's an interesting note to, to point that out because it's one of those things where, I don't know. I don't know how you fix that, but like, it's something that absolutely needs to be fixed. If you have this very high quality program and something that's very germane to, uh, to, to the entire state, but specifically to the part of the state that, that it is ostensibly meant to serve the students of Eastern Oregon and people just kind of use it as a waypoint to navigate to a school that's got more of a brand name, even though the curriculum itself is less rigorous and kind of to our back to our, you know, 30,000 foot view points that we're talking about. How do you make Republicanism relevant to people in their twenties? I mean, we, we, we talk, GOP talks about head stuff. We talk about tax policy and, you know, foreign affairs and international relations. I, all these different kinds of things, very heady, you know, topics, how to start, you know, how to be more friendly to small business owners and whatever. And if you're 20 years old, a lot of that stuff can be difficult to grasp if you've never owned a business or if you've never paid taxes or anything like that. And I think that's a great way for somebody like yourself, a candidate like yourself to be able to say, Hey, I, you know, this isn't just a, you know, whatever mark on a resume for me. This is my actual life. And I'm, I'm running because I'm trying to make these things better. Yeah. It's, one of the conversations that need to be sub-focused, especially for getting young voters and trying to push them more back towards conservative ideals. Funny enough, I had a conversation last night at the Reagan dinner with a member from the Marion Polk First Board. And my generation is the most conservative generation out of all, but it's also is also the most liberal at the same time. It's very weird to say that. So the reason we're called the most conservative generation is because for the first time in history, conservatives out, have out-reproduced Democrats. Mm. Hey, all right. Because <laughs> <laughs> Republicans are replicating at higher than the replication rate required, which is about 2.4 humans per person, per yeah. couple. And Democrats are slight, is heavily under that, about 1.2. You know, this is actually I've, – I've had this discussion of – you want to help the Republican Party have more babies, which is a very long-term view of how you grow the party. <laughs> but uh, it is actually interesting. Um, I think the Democratic Party is shooting themselves in the foot when it comes to uh, – because they're, they're the doom and gloom party, mm -hmm. you know, especially with things like climate change. I think that there are folks who are your age who are scared to death that the world is going to end in the next two and a half years – and so they're not choosing to have kids. They're not choosing mm -hmm. to, they're, they're just like, enjoy it while you got it because the world's going to end. And this is a fallacy that the Democrats have pushed. And, you know, maybe it's winning them a couple of votes now, but you're, you're damaging your long-term prospects mm -hmm. when you're, when you're so effective with your doom and gloom strategy that people are not having kids and not starting families. Well, and even on the topic of 
climate change, the Republicans really do need to take a stance and rather be, I'm not saying that it were a party of conspiracy theories. That's what we're branded by the left, but we need to actually have somebody that's willing to talk about it and make some of those conversations. Because you look at my generation, we've been, you can say brainwashed since we were born about (laughs) climate change, even though you can even look and Possibly out of the University of Utah, they talked about the Ice Age theory, and we're just following the natural cyclical cycle of the Earth, Mm -hmm. that my generation is deathly scared of what's going to happen. And you have no conservatives out here talking about it, and it's just really we're saying being called conspiracy theorists because we're we're being climate change deniers, rather than saying, even with the studies from the University of Utah, yes, climate is changing, it's natural. But it can be harmful to us, and we should be looking at possibly ways to slow it down. But doing this in common sense, conservative manners, being energy independent, going back into nuclear, looking at carbon capture, even talking with um, doing uh, concrete in right ways, using either carbon curing concrete or even going back to Roman concrete, which is self-healing instead of it falling in 30 years. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, well, we just had an episode where we talked with some climate change folks, yeah. uh, one of whom he straight up said, he said, I'm a Republican, but I think it's asinine that, you know, this You're- is one of the bigger problems facing us. And there were a lot of pro small government solutions. And one of which was, he said, yeah, we absolutely need to get back into nuclear. Anybody who's, you know, sounding the alarm about climate change, but is not advocating for more nuclear power is somebody that you do not need to take seriously. And it's like, yeah, it's 100% right. I'm a, I'm a great I love SMRs, small modular reactors. Mm. And especially if you're looking into thorium salt reactors, they're some of the safest reactors out there. My grandfather was a nuclear engineer on a submarine for the U.S. Navy. Nice. So I've had history learning about this projects as well as learning about renewables, especially from being in the gorge where you have all the windmills and solar panels. We're surrounded by it consistently. Well, that's what I think silly is people who talk about nuclear being unsafe or whatever have completely ignored the fact that we've been running submarines and aircraft carriers on nuclear reactors for 70 years and if you're look there what they're a lot of them are thinking are the old style reactors they're thinking of poor planning such as chernobyl where they knew there was a problem with the reactor and right. the soviet government never fixed it or you're it. looking at three mile island or fukushima which it's bad planning on where they put those plants rather than being strategic right. and being smart but it can, is, it can be done safely it has been done safely for 70 times. years yeah it's a part of i'm part of the problem honestly because there's a stretch of like two years where every episode bring up the tv show chernobyl <laughs> <laughs> I love watching it. It's a great show, but yeah, you watch that and you're going to be pretty anti-nuclear pretty quick. <laughs> well, I watched it and I still came out pro-nuclear. Right, there we go. Yeah. But I'm pro-nuclear, but anti-Soviet. <laughs> anti-Soviet. That's, that, that, that's the great way to phrase that. And you, we need to be anti-dumb buttery. <laughs> that's really what hey, it there is. there we go. It, it's, it's the fact that they hit it, they knew that there was a problem, and because there was no oversight from other nations watching it that were that could have been affected it's it, that created the problem for Chernobyl and now it's still a problem within the eastern europe at today and 
we not saying that we need to be open with our nuclear program. That's still stupid, but we need to make sure that there's some way to actually be transparent with the communities that it's in and saying, Hey, here's, here's what, what's up and here's how this system's designed not to blow up. Yeah. And that needs to be an active conversation and moving to SMRs and having them buried underground in your backyard. Mm-hmm. That's not going to be a thing that you're seeing the giant smokestack. Yeah. <laughs> that's freaking everybody out. And part of it is we, we're needing to design it into new urbanism and having those designs brought in with the communities instead of having, oh, it's the big scary nuclear plant out there or the big scary coal plant. Um, well, we even the, the big, the big scariness is uh, fake. Like it's not, it's not scary. People are, are scared because they watch too much TV, not mm-hmm. because of the actual danger proposed by these things. Exactly. Um, so I'll say a couple of things. First of all, we are the conservative party, which by nature is doesn't move very quickly. That's what it means to be a conservative is you you kind of like things the way they are and you don't want to change very quickly. And so it comes it just with things with everything, whether it's climate change or same sex <laughs> marriage or whatever. It just takes the Republican Party a longer time to get on board. And I think that's just the nature of how how republicans and how conservatives work mm-hmm. um the other thing i was going to say um and get on my little soapbox and i wish i brought this up more when in our uh conversation with the uh, uh the other folks the the environmental folks is i personally believe that uh climate change is happening it is man-caused and it's also not that big of a deal mm-hmm. like what are we really talking about here is the earth going to stop spinning because of climate change no like we're going to we're going to see some effects the world's going to get hotter we're going to get more extreme weather um and at the same time like we will adapt exactly Hum- humans will adapt we and, always you know, have it, it's it's not something that we should should be excited about not something we should relish i mean we're going to see things like algae blooms we're going to see things like extinction of species fish in particular are going to be um harmed by this we're going to see extinction of fish species and none of that's good and we should always move toward mitigating those kind of damages and also it's not that big of a deal (laughs) we are uh, this is something dan crenshaw put out the number of people who died from climate related activities has cut by 95 percent in the last 100 years Mm -hmm. and the big reason for that is technological advancements um the the better better building practices and access to cheap energy you know you don't die from a heat wave if you got air conditioning and you don't die from a hurricane if you have a strong building that was built to withstand a hurricane you don't die from a tornado if you have early warning systems and so the and a lot of this is driven by fossil fuels and access to cheap energy so like, what are we really talking about when we talk about climate change? The world's not going to end. Humans are surviving climate events at an extraordinary rate. So we're talking about, you know, animals, basically. Maybe making things a little bit more expensive for humans when you have to build a levee around Miami. But <laughs> <laughs> so, as, a, as a, again, 30,000-foot view kind of thing, and this might be, this would be a good, you know, you and I can debate, because people have, people have emailed us and be like, you guys shouldn't be radio hosts together because you just... Okay. It doesn't matter who says what because you just you guys think the same about whatever it is that you're talking about. I think that the GOP is the quick moving party. I think by nature we are the party of individuals and of families and of much smaller units. If somebody says I want to go start a business, 
I want to, I'm going to go take out a loan and talk to a bank and I, in three hours, I will have an LLC and be ready to go. I think the Democrats are the ones who say we need red tape and we need bureaucracy and we need 14 layers of, you know, making sure everything is, is checked off and good to go. And, you know, we can employ 47 government employees to keep them, keep their eye on you. I think that we get stuff wrong. I think same sex marriage was one of them where, yeah, the Democratic party was 20 years ahead of us on that one. And I think a lot of, GOP folks, especially younger GOP folks, is where they need to be on that now. And I think that's one example of where we got something wrong versus 50 examples of where the left gets stuff wrong. They're, they're wrong on transgender kids right now. And like, they don't know that mm-hmm. yet. They don't know that they're making <laughs> children's lives worse, but we're right and they're wrong and they're trying to make the government go through and do their own thing about it. I will say it's, I, I agree with you on the, not benignness of climate change. I think it, it, it is real. It is caused by humans and it is it problematic. It's to not an nearly. So I don't mean it's, I don't mean it benign. I mean mm-hmm. that it is not nearly as bad as the left is making but, it out to be. And all these people agree, who are not having kids because they think the world's going to be underwater in a couple of years are being lied to. Well, and, and I agree on that too. That's very accurate. And just, just as thing, the politicians that are talking about climate change are buying beachfront houses. Right. Yeah. O- Obama bought a, <laughs> a beachfront property. Yeah. <laughs> like, and he's in Hawaii, I think, too. Right, yeah, in Hawaii. Just like, aren't you? Wouldn't this be a problem? At two feet above sea level. It's like, bro, do you believe and, this stuff? You're and selling? having a, just a larger conversation about conservatism within the climate change conversation. Conservatism were the original conservators of nature. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's something I feel like the Republican Party has slightly lost in their conversation because they feel it is partly state overreach mm-hmm. in taking that and expanding it because we've had so many state parks even just pop up within recent years. Well, this is another thing. So, at one of the things they talked about at the Reagan dinner last night is of the countries who were involved in the Paris Climate Accords, The we've talked about this on the pod before, the country who has made the most uh, reduction in carbon is the United States. And the reason we did that is because we're switching from coal to natural gas. Mm-hmm. The United States is basically the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. Oh, yeah. We have nearly, and not unlimited, but we have a, a ton of natural gas in the United States and it burns cleaner. And this is, like I said, this is the, this is the thing that has got us to reduce our, our, our carbon footprint is switching to natural gas. And this is a thing that the Democrats are wrong about by there, trying to block yeah. natural gas. That's two. We're still, we'll start yeah. a tally here on this episode. That's two. <laughs> well, episode with that with Stephen Lloyd, friend of the pod, who's come yes. on talked about natural gas before. It's and like, y'all haven't listened to that one. Listen to it. I know even some conversations that some of the stuff that's even happening, we need to talk about pipelines and having mm-hmm. more pipelines because that is the safest way to transport oil, natural gas, everything because you don't, you have less accidents because of it. You have, we've had even Mm -hmm. in more recent years, more train derailments, more trucks flipping over. I mean, just last week, not last week, two weeks ago, we had two semi trucks end up in the Columbia. (laughs) I saw photos of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was out near my grandparents' house in Rufus. I got to go see it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you're, you're seeing these, we're, we're starting to have more accidents coming as a natural thing within our ever-expanding economy. So we need to start trying to find ways to mitigate that risk that we're taking. And a lot of it is pipelines. Also, lefties, lefties, if we have X barrels of oil that need to be transported by Y number of semi-trucks who get Z miles to the gallon on their gas, what's the impact of climate change on that versus just building the pipeline? And once it's there, it's done. And now there's no carbon emissions. If we're 
Yeah, three yeah, things. Three right. things. Keep the tally running. Yeah, and that goes the same with transportation. This is probably less of an issue out your your neck of the woods. But what happens when you have a bunch of cars idling in traffic from two p.m. until eight p.m. every single day? How's that good for the yeah. economy? And so here we are. Uh, you know, in Portland, we haven't built a highway since the seventies, and probably aren't going to build a highway in the near future. <laughs> Meanwhile, our population in the area has close to doubled. What happens when you have double the number of people and you don't keep up with your infrastructure? You get gridlock. So what do we have? Gridlock. Cars idling in traffic. Well, and Global even... Warming. Global th- warming. That That is a sub-conversation about infrastructure as well and proper city planning. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you're looking at a lot of these cities, a lot of the cities don't even have proper plans or even are being hampering. Um, the city of the Dalles is just outside of my district. Mm-hmm. But it... After talking with the county commissioners in Wasco County, the Dallas is extremely hampered because they're trying to expand and build new housing, and they get it approved by the state, they get it approved by the county, they get it approved by the city, and they have to go to the federal government because they're in the National Scenic Area, and then oh. they they deny it. Oh, yes. man. Yeah. So, it, it, it's on conversations of being able to properly plan and work together with organizations because... Even with the conversations just around roads, we do have a mindset of built, let's just build one more lane. And unfortunately, with some of the studies that have been shown, building one more lane is not really effective mm-hmm. and it increases tra- overall traffic. It's worse, yeah. So, no, it doesn't. All right. I'm going to disagree with you guys. Okay. Induced demand is what you're talking about. And what induced demand is, is 3 to 5% increase in, in usage. So, you add, you take a two-lane road and you add 50%, 5-0% capacity by adding one lane. You get a 3 to 5% incre- increase in the number of people who, who take it. So, yes, it induces some demand, but not to the point where it makes things worse, first of all. And second of all, like... It's a, you've already have a negative incentive to drive. You mm-hmm. know, gas costs money, cars cost money. People don't just go cruising. You know, maybe they did in the fifties, but not oh, so yeah. much anymore. People people drive because they have some place to be, and most of the time that's work. And people aren't able to choose when and where they work. You know, maybe they can move closer to where they're at, um, but generally not. You know, when you have these very dense cities, you have very high cost of living, mm-hmm. small units close to town, close to where work is, which means if you have a family or you're low income and you need to live further away, you have to drive. You know, this is uh, just math. The uh, The amount of area that you need to cover in public transit as it it is the square of the distance from city center, right? The area of a circle is the square of the radius or the square of the diameter. Anyway, the further you get I'm away... I'm a tree on Rational Republican yeah. today. Yo! <laughs> Did not expect that on a Sunday morning. <laughs> So, in order for public transit to be effective, you need to have very dense, very small geographic area because you need frequent service. You need, uh, yeah, you need frequent service and people need to get where they're going quickly. The further you get away, like I said, you, you need to have a square of the number of, of amount of service to have the same level of service. Uh, public transit becomes impossible to do well as you mm-hmm. get further away from town. Um, I will, I will definitely so agree with that because you do East, need another lane. In, in East, <laughs> I, I'm not going to argue just, too just, much on that. Uh, I, was, I will. I'll, I'll find the white papers. I'll send them over right. to you because it absolutely does make it worse. Not, <laughs> not in the immediate term because you're right. It's small, but then mm-hmm. people start building up housing. People start using that as the place that, that and wrap themselves to get to work. Is and kind of well, with, with, what, what with side conversations, anyway? <laughs> um, a lot of it is also with 
the possible, especially when you're in the city corridors where some of them, some of the conversations are there for that. You have to reroute some infrastructure that's already there. And that that's in a different side of cost with everything. But I will agree with you on public transportation because out here in Eastern Oregon, our transportation sucks. Mm-hmm. And it's not because we don't have the infrequent service. We don't have the people to fund it. Yeah. And so a lot of our, a lot of them out here, it is up to private organizations or the city and county. So Willow County is with a group called Northeastern Oregon Coordinate. Sorry, Community Connections in Northeastern Oregon. They have NEO on their bus. (laughs) That's why my brain is getting confused. Um, And that covers Union, Baker, and Willow County. And then with on top of that, you have Kayak, which is from the Umatilla Reservation that has a connection between um, LeGrand and out through Umatilla in Morrow County. Yeah. And Kayak is from the tribe. And then mm. you have this private organization that is county subfunded when you're referring to Wallawa Union and Baker County. And so you're stuck in between of we don't have enough ridership, but this is a vital service for some a very small minority of people and trying to figure out how we're going to fund it and expand the um, knowledge of this program. So for example, in Willow County, it is the best time for us to run that service is in the summer because we have it used by tourists because Willow County is a tourist designated economy. Yeah. We have so many people that come in and go visit Willow Lake and that's the best time to have it because you have the bus running from Willow all the way to Willow Lake Hmm. consistently about every 15-ish minutes. Yeah, and that's like... (laughs) And that's when it makes sense. Not anti-transit. I think transit is important, especially for a lot of people who rely on it. And... um, the, but it doesn't need to expand just for the sake of expanding. And I exactly. think that's what they're trying to do in Portland is they're like, we need everybody to take transit. We're going to expand transit even to places where they don't need it because people are going to need it. It's mm-hmm. like, well, no, you, you, you follow the demand and you allow people to, to use it as needed. I think it's, it supplements your, your transportation plan. Exactly. I, I don't think and, it replaces your transportation plan. And even within that, 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 that goes back to the conversation about proper planning. Yeah. Cause when you're designing, these new areas you should have a pre-plan of okay we'll have public transport at some point through here it's not needed at the moment but maybe we should look into having this pre-plan so it doesn't cost tens of millions of dollars to put in later but also with that you're needing to try to sub-focus and make your system more efficient Mm-hmm. And that's where they're really needing to spend their time and focusing on, on making the system that already exists efficient because it's not very efficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also. Yeah. This is why so we're Republicans because we don't like an efficient government <laughs> program. This is, what, this is what we're doing here. You're, you're, you're taking my money and you're not spending it wisely. Yeah. I, I, seriously, that's the thing. Is everybody loves, oh, the GOP, oh, these, these anti-abortion folks, anti-same-sex marriage. Like, I just want stuff to work. Yeah. Like, well, you know, why am I a racist all of a sudden? I, I just want stuff to gonna work. We're going to have a whole podcast on government inefficiencies <laughs> yeah, there, and wasted money. Several of Yeah. I want to make my government work for me. I don't want to work for my government. Yeah. yeah. Well said. Well, folks, we are just about out of time. So, Andy, one of the things we like to do at the end of our podcast is ask our, our guests the same question. Uh, who is your favorite Republican? Can be living or dead, current. Uh, Oregonian or national. Oregonian, national. You got a lot of free freebies there. So, my I, I will split it up into two. 
So I have my favorite non-living or Republican Oregonian would be following under with Vicatia and Tom McCall. Mm, nice. Now my favorite alive Republican is going to have to be one of my good friends, Representative Bobby Levy. Mm-hmm. Also nice. Partly worked for her, so I'm a little bit biased. Yeah. <laughs> good. But having that relationship and seeing the hard work that we're doing in the legislature and building it up and having conversations with the other legislatures, Representative Levy has a larger overview and is willing to work and provide stuff for her district in the state. Good. Well, Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Glad we got you on your way home from the Reagan dinner. So, uh, yeah. And listeners, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Berlowski. Lauren Christensen is our producer. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts.